You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Phenomena 
we are seeing throughout the Western world today. Uh, it is evident that Professor Babas is one of the most important figures uh, uh, to address uh, this topic, and certainly in terms of contemporary post-colonial studies. And so really, it's no surprise uh, uh, to see so many of you here uh, this evening. He is the author of too many books to mention, um, but they have explored uh, post-colonial theory, cultural change and power, contemporary art and cosmopolitanism, and they include nation and narration and the location of culture. He's currently on sabbatical, working on his next book. He hasn't quite decided on the title, but it will come out in uh, 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 2018 uh, and published by at University of Chicago Press. Professor Baba has had many, many accolades. Uh, back in, two, in 1997, uh, Newsweek uh, profiled him as one of uh, 100 Americans for the next century. Isn't that wonderful? One of 100 Americans for the next century, and here we are in the next century. Um, his many honors include India's uh, Padma Presidential Award, uh, and uh, more recently, he received the Humboldt uh, Research uh, Prize. So obviously his distinctions are many, but I also feel hugely privileged because uh, Professor Baba has become a, a, a close friend. We first met back in 2014, and I just want to share this story with you because it shows you how small the world is. I was then the Vice Provost for Global Relations here at Trinity, and I used to be in India something like every six weeks. Um, and I work very closely with the Honorary Consul General in Bombay, a wonderful man called Cyrus Goodzer. Anyway, uh, I was there on a visit and Cyrus said, Jane, have you ever been to a Parsi wedding? And I said, no. He said, well, would you like to go to one? And I said, well, I'd love to. And he said, great. He says, we're going to stop and pick up my cousin on way to the wedding. I said, well, fabulous. He said, uh, you might actually have heard of him. You might even know him. And I said, well, who is he? He said, he's a Harvard academic. Um, called Omibaba. Well, of course, I knew exactly who he was. And, and uh, on that occasion, uh, we had great crack, as they would say here in uh, Ireland, uh, Homi, uh, at the uh, wedding. It was a very special moment. But subsequent to that, we've been working very closely together in an international consortium of humanities research institutes. It's called CHCI, but basically it's International Network of Humanities Research Centres and Institutes. And actually, it's holding its annual meeting uh, here in uh, Dublin in June 2019. And at that, actually, Professor Baba will be speaking uh, again. He's doing an in-conversation with the poet uh, Claudia Rankin. So tonight, uh, you know, I was going to say, is about Professor Baba. But you know, you'll all, I'm sure, uh, uh, love to come back and hear him again uh, uh, next June. Anyway, uh, in terms of the format this evening, um, uh, Homi uh, will give his lecture and then we'll have an opportunity for question uh, and answers. Uh, tonight's talk is being podcast and live streamed, we hope. Yes? Yes, great. Uh, through our Facebook page. Uh, you can also join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag uh, HubMatters. So, distinguished guests, uh, friends, colleagues, and those joining us online, please now join me in welcoming Professor Homi Baba.
the provost of the University of Chicago where I taught used to say, nobody ever hugged till Homi turned up. <laughs> but it's a great pleasure. Uh, Dr. Jane, Professor Jane Olmeyer, to be with you, to be at your remarkable hub, which really is a hub. It's like a kind of machine at the center of the, of the university, and that's such an achievement. I've only seen it a few moments ago, and it really struck me that the vision that made it possible and the location in which it exists gives the humanities a kind of stature, um, physical, intellectual, ethical, that I hadn't seen in my travels. Um, usually, we are supported in humanities centers and tucked away in libraries or in older buildings. But to, to, to really, re to really uh, create a face for the humanities, that's the way, a facade for the humanities, a face for the humanities, I think is extraordinarily important. And to create a contemporary face in the midst of this extraordinarily beautiful quad is very special really does bridge what is new with the other lasting textures, styles, and designs with which we have lived ourselves for a long time. It's a renewal. It's not only new, but it's a renewal. And uh, I'm delighted and honored to be here. Jane, thank you very much. I also want to thank Aoife King, who has worked tirelessly to make this trip uh, a pleasure. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let me just briefly say a couple of things uh, before I start. The work I've been doing on migration, statelessness, refugees, minorities, comes from the work I've done earlier on the way in which post-colonial societies, and indeed, largely post-colonial societies, although I've worked on it in an earlier period, create a specific conundrum which John Stuart Mill beautifully expressed. Working for the uh, East India Company, that was in many ways the kind of governing board for the, uh, for the Indian, uh, for, Indian uh, for British colonization in India, Mill asked himself the question, I am a Democrat in my country and a despot in another's country, and what does that make of me? And my interest really has not been simply in thinking about the global north and the global south, but the ways in which power and privilege are always, whether it's the global south or north, increasingly so in our own times, at the intersection of this, of, of this question. I am privileged, and yet I live in the middle of deprivation. I am powerful, and yet I live in the midst of dispossession. And it is this kind of conundrum, this contradiction, that I think is at the center of the strongest traditions of the Enlightenment, not only the European Enlightenment, but the 
enlightenment around the world over time. And today I want to actually explore this kind of contradictory situation, this kind of anxious positioning that we have when we look at the when we look at the very troubled times in which we're living at the moment. My attempt is to start often with literature or poetry and to work towards policy, social policy or philosophy, or even some ventures of the law. I do believe that the figurative language, the figurative language that that, act, that, that stretches right across the humanities. The importance for the humanities of the, not only of the rights to expression and creativity, but the incredible importance around the question of interpretation. What is interpretation? What is fair interpretation? What is deep interpretation? How does interpretation allow you to, in fact, create a moral and an ethical relationship to those whose ideas you disagree with, or those whose views you do not accept. This talk really is about interpretation, interpreting the phenomenon of migration, of refugees, and seeing the different issues that it raises for us. I want to begin with a quote from Walter Benjamin's remarkable and unfinished arcades project, which allows people like me to scribble between the lines and to use this great unfinished work to elaborate it and engage with it and make it contemporary, to renew it, as indeed you have done with your art. At any given time, the living see themselves in the midday of history. They're obliged to prepare a banquet for the past. The historian is the herald who invites the dead to the table. Any curricular inquiry into the perilous life world of distressed migration must acknowledge Hannah Arendt's warning that there is no outside to the global system. Whatever alienates global interdependence or annihilates cosmopolitan values must be seen to arise from the, from the demonic dynamics of the progress of the global condition itself. Deadly danger to any global civilization is no longer likely to come from without, Arendt writes, the danger is that a global, universally interrelated civilization may produce barbarians from its own midst by forcing millions of people into conditions which, despite all appearances, are the conditions of savages. In a telling footnote, often overlooked, Arendt addresses the, flickle, the fickle global promise of progress the never-ending, as she puts it, accumulation of capital and power from the perspective of the colonized subjects in India. The politics of the fickle imperial promise 
of economic development and social progress becomes the proving ground for challenging the global climate of capitalist or neoliberal progress more generally. Arendt resorts to a question posed by a bureaucratic functionary of the Indian civil service in the interwar years. What then, the civil servant asks, of those who are crushed by the triumphal power of progress? Please, this is not an admonition of progress. This is a very, uh, an awareness of the problematics, as I said, the, the, the conflicts, the contradictions, the paradoxes of progress. Arendt responds with a citation from none other than that celebrated post-colonial philosopher, Walter Benjamin. What we call progress is the wind that drives the angel of history, Benjamin writes, irresistibly into the future to which he turns his back while the pile of ruins before him bows to the sky. Progress and the pile of ruins, death and the pursuit of freedom, the human artifice and mere existence, human risk and human rights. These are some of the issues that I'll be circling around today. As barbarism stirs in the midst of our own interconnected civilization, the barbarians, I'm afraid, are no longer at the gates. Today, the barbarians police the gates, and the victims are, in the main, according to me, migrants, minorities, and refugees, who, in Arendt's poignant description, are the oppressed, history-suffering groups. In the United States, and more recently in Italy, Steve Bannon has become the prime proponent of a new barbarism. And this designation is not mine. It is his own self-description of the political movement he leads. In an excellent recent interview with The Economist, Bannon proudly assumed the mantle of barbarism. Speaking of the US election, the Trump election, this is how he described his ideological mission. The country was thirsting for change, and Barack Obama didn't give them enough. I said, we are going for a nationalist message. We are going to go barbarian, and we will win. I'm not going to elaborate this particular phrase to great length, but you can take it up. Discrimination and dishonor, I believe, are two contemporary faces of barbaric nationalism mobilized to denigrate minorities and marginalized populations, whether they are in flight or at home, national, regional, or international. Their dignity as citizens, workers, members of civil society is arrested, and their humanity as parents and children, individuals and communities, is often attacked. On the borders, on the streets, in detention centers and camps. Discrimination is generally regarded to be institutional and systemic. It is often associated with a vacuum or violation of rights and representation. And there exists a popular presumption that discrimination can be overcome by some form of legal redress or political remedy. Dishonor or denigration of the kind that we hear 
from the pulpits of the kind that we hear on television, the kind that we hear on the great political platforms, only too often now are different kinds of social humiliation and cultural misrecognition that drives past the subject's political or ethical designation. Its representational medium is often visual, verbal, figurative, and imagistic. Its temporal medium is frequently informal and extra-institutional. Its object of vilification is, only, is often connected with embodied affective states of being and identity associated too often with race, gender, generation, sexuality, criminality, and one's location. Dishonor is often formally protected by free speech and inadequately, to my view, regulated by anti-hate speech legislation. You could say that the dishonored are suspended in a precarious liminal space between animality and humanity, between bestiality and civility. Discrimination relies on a biopolitics of calculation and quantification to make its case for a quality, quota, data, statistics, numbers, ratios. Dishonor or denigration is a biopolitics of affect, anxiety, fear, death, and often destruction. You can imagine an end to discrimination, but today there seems to be no formal closure to the informal indignity of dishonor. And of course, um, the elephant in the room are some of the Trumpian statements, including one that strikes me as chilling. If I killed somebody on Fifth Avenue, my supporters would not desert me, or worse to that effect. For all their brave talk, the lineup of inflated male leaders who dominate the world today, Putin, Trump, Erdogan, Modi, Duterte, Maduro, are not, in my view, politics of the kind of charisma they claim. They are politicians of miasma. And the political rhetoric of dishonor and humiliation operates to create the fog of war that emanates from their divisive ethnic nationalisms as they rise in the guise of saviors to return to the people a sense of their true blood and primordial belonging. Each of these leaders embody the character of tribal nationalism, as Hannah Arendt defines it in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Politically speaking, she writes, tribal nationalism always insists that its own people is surrounded by a world of enemies, one against all, that a fundamental difference exists between this people and all others. It claims its people to be unique, individual, incompatible with others, and denies theoretically the very possibility of a common mankind long before it is used to destroy the humanity of man. And of course, my own country, India, is not free at the moment of this kind of rhetoric. Muslims, Christians, 
are often seriously beyond the pale of citizenship. It's my feeling that the language of discrimination denies political and social subjects the rights of the citizen. But the language of denigration and dishonor I'm talking about suggests that these subjects, these people, are not even worthy of the rights of man. They have no political capacity. That's why the language of animality, bestiality, dishonor, humiliation, becomes so popular when people want to think of groups outside, outside of the political common real. And I think that the tragedy of our times is that this language, this language of dishonor and denigration manages to get votes and followers. I'm really, I'm trying to understand why. Not why this happens, but why we have oftentimes this quick reversal to the one to the other. And it's no consolation to say these things are possibly in the subterranean, in the, sub in the subterranean surface of society, in the political uh, subconscious, and sometimes they come up and sometimes they die down. I think our job is to try and find out why these terms happen. Why a two-term educated woman voter for Obama would turn to Trump. Now, I think this is a very important question. I have some ideas about it. We can take it up, but it's not the center of what I want to say today. My lecture this evening is built around instances of political barbarism, as, as I see them, enacted in the colonial state practice of indentured labor and the contemporary interstate problem of migration, economic, political, or refugees. This is not primarily an engagement with legal or political theory of those conditions of life. I teach literature, and it is literature that I want to actually work with. It's a language of metaphor, of figuration. I will start with a boy, Ralph Singh, stranded on a colonized beach in V.S. Naipaul's novel, Mimic Man, and make my way to the dead body of the Syrian child, Alam Kurdi, washed up on a beach in Turkey. My own narrative, you could say, follows a pattern of thought that is itself more migratory than simply my message. How do we read a historical situation in which the human agency of hope and survival is so perilously close to the facts and figures of death, loss, fear, risk, vulnerability, the void, that we don't quite know where those agents, those subjects stand. A political ethic of ironic tenacity, of resistance, of choice in the most dire circumstances rises in the face of injury and indignity, alluding to what he calls the death-like metaphor. The French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas suggests, and I quote him, that it is in being answerable for the neighbor's life that we stand with the other in death. So, first section. A boy the size of a young tree. A boy the size of a young tree, 
a strange transplant from another shore, stands in the midst of a coconut grove on a beach in the Caribbean island of Isabella, a stone's throw from the water's edge. The sea, that living, destroying element almost colorless at this distance, provokes the anxious dread of a place of no return. Behind him, a two-story timbered house, impermanent for migrant, awkwardly out of place, is bereft of the cultivation of a garden or the security of a fence. Thinking back to this very Sunday on the beach years later, Ralph Singh, V.S. Naipaul's mimic man, relives his sense of, of abandonment, the feeling of this abandonment at the end of the empty world. And then, as a corollary, he adds, to me standing in my detachment, my overwhelming fear of death as, a, as, a, as, the, as the sign, as the sign of histories of migration. Suddenly, he says, death and my story came to me in patches. Suddenly, death has visited the island again, disrupting the beach party and the somnolence of a Sunday afternoon. The boy hears disturbed voices made almost inaudible by the torrid seductions of Frank Sinatra's voice over the radio, Pesame Mucho. Do I need to remind you? Besame, besame mucho. Each time I cling to your kiss, I hear music divine. Also, besame, besame mucho. I love you, my darling. Say this Snatches of disconcerting news break through the sinuous lyrics of this longing for love. The sea is full of roiling, drifting, drowning bodies. After a desperate rescue, the dead day trippers are laid out like rows of netted fish, corpses amidst the daily catch. Mixed in with the dead bodies, a species of fish locally considered to be the icons of death. There were fish we call the dogfish, attracted by death, people said. From the place of death, Ralph Singh addresses the history and the memories of migration. Now death is deep in the eye of the beholder and punctuates the very act of writing. Once the drowned bodies are brought to shore in the company of the dogfish, Ralph's detachment, his overwhelming fear of death, is neither a private matter nor a public one. What is beheld in the words of a narrator is what he calls a geography lesson of migration in miniature, the time speeded up, visible only from a repeating motif in the book, which is the colonial camera in the sky, being watched from elsewhere, being powered, empowered from elsewhere, being surveilled from elsewhere. The panoptic gaze of power from elsewhere gives the Caribbean island of Isabella the dominant image it has of itself, its people, off-center, off the map. And it is the camera in the sky, the camera mortise, as I call it in my book, that provides both the technology of temporal experience and then becomes the history and the medium of self-recognition. Ralph writes, on the beach itself, the banks of these channels, the tide now rising were continually undermined, fell off in vertical sections, and then the process of rounding and undermining began again, a geography lesson in miniature, 
with time speeded up. Here lay the tree fast in the sand, which was deep and level around it, floating light on the water, was coming to the end of the journey at a particular time, the home now of scores of alien creatures that scattered at my approach. Here the island was like the place still awaiting Columbus and discovery. And what was an unmarked boy doing here, shipwrecked chieftain on an unknown shore, awaiting rescue all his life, awaiting the arrivals of ships of curious shapes to take him back to the mountains from India where he came, but I was not unmarked. The camera was in the sky. Death dwells in the eye of the camera mortis, and death agitates the moment of colonial discovery. The speeded up shutter speed of the camera in the sky perched like a bird of prey over the shipwrecked, indentured migrants of many generations that drowned in the same provides a miniaturized image a snapshot of the colonial terrain of migration. And from the camera angle of this geography lesson in miniature, there emerges a larger lesson about the narrative form in which the history of post-colonial Isabella should be written. Nightfall, you will remember, starts the mimic man by saying he wants to write a great, continuous, progressive history of the Caribbean. He ends up with what he calls a vision of disorder my overwhelming fear of death has a distinct political genealogy in Isabella's migration narrative. The ontological fear of death life, this continual conflict of the conditions of migration, hope, fatality, natality, fatality, death life, this continual tension, this continual friction. Death life as an ontological figure is the devil's apprentice in the indentured laborer's transition to the new world. And it is this death as living, spectrality as survival, that the camera mortis tracks in the indentured world, and I think also tracks for us, as you will see, when I talk about Elan Kurdi in the migration crisis of our own time. And it strikes me in this, that there is a moment of indent the transition, the transitional state, the transitional fear being in suspension, which was so important to indentured labor in the colonial world, has something very close to the transitional, the transitional states, the detentions, the weights, the lack of historical, uh, sorry, legal definition of status in the refugee crisis today. I see those, these two moments as being as closely linked as people who have linked this migration crisis with what happened after the Second World War, just before and after the Second World War. Death was, of course, the denizen of Caribbean indenture and stalked the coolies throughout the transitional processes of migration and resettlement. The space opened up to indentured labor and the plantation economy in 1830s and 40s was created through the alarming loss of life amongst Afro-Caribbean slaves in direct proportion to the overproduction in sugar cultivation. Death waited impatiently on the banks of the Hooghly River in Calcutta as indentured Indian colleagues lined up to board the Hooty Rosa, which set sail for Trinidad with its first cargo on the 26th of January, 1845. If political strife and struggle 
economic deprivation creates the uh, migration today, indentured laborers left for the Caribbean partly because of the famine in India at that time. This is also a very skillful re reconstituting of colonial populations by the British to move from one to move them from one place to another, from where there was a kind of famine and emergency situation to, to the Caribbean, where there was a whole problem to do with the overproduction of sugar and Afro-Caribbean loss of life. <clears throat> um, death waited impatiently on the banks of the Hooghly in Calcutta as indentured Indian coolies lined up toward the footing Rosac, which set sail for Trinidad with its first cargo on the 26th of January, 1845. In the words of the river pilot, the indentured coolies were, and he says, attacked with a kind of infectious or jail fever, the number of six, sick daily increasing with a general complaint of their being led away with false stories and promises. Social death waited grimly to welcome the Indian coolies on their arrival in Trinidad. Human stock bought cheap at 21 pounds per head, where they found that their contractual <coughs> arrangements had often been revoked and indentured status was reduced to slave conditions between their departure and their arrival. The terms of the indentured contract allowed for much greater control of the labor force, writes Northrop in his great work on colonial indenture. The free movement initially granted to indentured migrants that they could buy themselves out of their indenture was soon limited by past laws and prison sentences that reverted to the slave laws of the past. Desertion and itinerant begging were common forms of destitution in an escape from intolerable work conditions and living arrangements. And like refugees today, or like the stateless, they were often seen somewhere in between. They were neither, they, 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 they had a very precarious and peculiar in-between status. Of the 4,556 schoolies who had arrived on the Putti Rosak, 1,304 could not be traced, and many were assumed to be dead five years later. The enigma of arrival, to use an Ipholian title, was a deathly experience. The history of migration is not simply the disruption of the ideal narrative of imperial sovereignty, national order, or even post-colonial dependency. Nor indeed can migratory history be represented solipsistically as seeing the first person narrator of the Vimic Man puts it, by my presence in this city, now as a refugee immigrant to impose order on my own history, to abolish the disturbance, which is what a narrative sequence might have led me to do." Unquote. The disturbance of the drowning at the beach under the gaze of the camera mortise provides a lesson in reading the migrant narrative of transition and translations as montage and it opens up an emergent, imminent, subaltern narrative mode that dwells somewhere in between history and autobiography, omniscience and individuality, continuity and break and breach, death and hope. Montage frames a spatially extensive present in the narrative, marked by disjointed temporal timelines, disparate sightlines and displaced sign systems. Montage as Walter Benjamin once argued, is the figural language 
that tracks historical emergencies, actualizes it rather than simply representing it. The desolate, exposed, timber-framed house of migrants with which I started, abandoned on the beach, is in the narrative cut by drowned bodies and dead fish, cut with insouciant Afro-Caribs and indulgent Indo-Christians, cut by the young Ralph's fear of death and drowning, cut by mangroves of the Caribbean islands, tangled with mangroves and sandbanks on the Hooghly in Calcutta. Cut. It's this kind of montage narrative that I believe most effectively explains these conditions very often. The long continuities that we see, the, uh, the gracious prose often deserts us. And I, one of my issues here is to try and understand why so much of the migrant archive, the refugee archive, is often presented in these juxtapositions of experiences. A philosophical idea about abandonment juxtaposed with a very detail, with a, with a detail. The continuities and the time scheme is not there in the same way as a more continual history. This is why Michael said, I started off by trying to write a grand narrative. I ended up with these details abutting each other, these moments abutting each other. The first stage in restoring heightened graphicness to the perceptibility of history, Benjamin once said in his criticism of both universal narratives and Marxist narratives, will be to carry over the principle of literary montage into the writing of history. That is, to assemble large-scale constructions out of the smallest and most precisely components, just as I was trying to reread the narrative I gave you in one form through the montage cutting that I tried to perform a moment ago. I never thought I would encounter Walter Benjamin on the corpse strewn beach in Isabella, alive with a tangled dogfish. Part two. How little do they know those now complicit in the loss of life? Seventy years after Naipaul's desolate image of Ralph Singh reflecting on the deathly omen of dogfish scattered amongst the corpses of day-trippers, themselves ghosts of indentured laborers of times past, Jenny Erpenbeck, the German writer's masterwork of Mediterranean migration, Go West Gone, written in 2017, resorts to a similar method of historical montage. Death life once again assumes the figure of the migrant, the trope of our time. The entangled lives of dead fish and drowned migrants appear once again in the tragedy of the drowned and the saved as they find themselves shored up in a detention center in Berlin, recounting their traumas while the TV news cuts in, in the background and the foreground at different times with a documentary on the on the processes, industrial processes of freezing fish. Rashid grabbed onto a cable, and this is how he stayed above water. Zaire can't swim either, but as the boat began to tip upside down, he climbed over the edge of the boat, sticking up in the air to its underside. And from there he was rescued, but 550 out of 800 drowned. The TV news shows a large number of fish on a conveyor belt. 
They were on the same boat, 550 out of 800 drowned. Fuck. Richard, the German researcher in Berlin, no longer desires any more information on fish processing. Shots of large shoals of fish laid out in rows on conveyor belts gloved hands systematically, um, systematically slicing into the flesh, the sharply ju juxtaposed narratives of refugee death by water set against screen images of dismembered fish gives Erpenbeck one of her most forceful and echoing lines. The ghosts of fish await their food. But at this point, at least, all 800 of the passengers are still alive. They won't soon. Erpenbeck's characters are victims of the Dublin Agreement or the Dublin Regulation that determines which EU country is responsible for the protection of distressed migration and refugees. In the words of Goodwin Gill, the leading legal authority on the Refugee Con uh, Convention and distressed migration, the Dublin Agreement, and I quote him, disregards individual interests in an almost dehumanizing approach to the asylum seeker as object, not subject, as therefore disentitled from any right to express a preference, let alone choose his or her destination, as object, not subject, something therefore to be taken back or taken in charge, of such lives where the saved continue to live out the burden of the ground, Erpenbeck writes. These days, the difference between the refugees who drown somewhere between Africa and Europe and those who don't is just a matter of happenstance. In this sense, every one of the African refugees here is simultaneously alive and dead. That's the issue that I have tried to evaluate, alive and dead at the same time. Despot and liberal at the same time. An issue not only for refugees and migrants, but an issue for all of us who participate in one way or another, who are present in this world. The trope of the living dead has developed an ontological authority across diverse humanistic discourses. Testimony, fiction, law, journalism, Climate change literature is very much about how we, without inhabiting the place of the death of the planet, we cannot today make ethical choices. So there is a, I believe, and this is not simply death as some simply dolorous issue. This is about survival through death. But I think the two, the death life, have to be held together almost themselves like an icon, like a medieval icon, or like a montage moment. To, for us to occupy them both in a way in order to find our own balance and our own judgment. <clears throat> in each of these invocations of death life, there sounds a common creed occur. In their singular ways, speaking of different causes and from disparate conditions, these voices bear witness to a barbarous condition defined as a crime of transnational barbarity by the Polish jurist Raphael Lemkin who would go on to draft the Genocide Convention in 1948. In his autobiography, Lem Lemkin describes the refugee as, and I quote, first of all a state of mind, a broken pencil, a ghost, 
their permanent impermanence, the suspension of their values and hopes, gradually ravages the soul. Acts of barbarity, indignity, cause humiliation, which when taken together, Lemkin argues, bring harm not only to human rights, but also and most especially undermine the fundamental basis of the social order. With a prescience relevant to ethnic cleansing, racial violence, cultural migration, and the migration crises of our own times, Lemkin defines barbarity as a process of transnational contagion directed against collectivities, and I quote, similar to epidemics, they can pass from one country to another. Indeed, acts of barbarity often cause the emigration or the disorganized flight of the population of one state to another state, the disorganized flight. How little they know those now complicit in the loss of life is Goodwin Gill's dark re rebuke in the Mediterranean papers to the rational choice principles of policy thinking on deterrence and its violation of the rights of migrant protection. How little the policy pundits know because they refuse to look. Figurative discourses, the languages of art, the tropes of literature, the mordant metaphors of testimony and witness reveal structures of political disavowal that afflict the rationale of policy practice. Rational choice policy resorts to physical, racial, political, and economic barriers, often building walls, sealing borders, and policing frontiers, because its prosaic proceduralism screens out the imminent flux of desire and danger, political passion, and in economic immiseration that is at the heart of the dilemmas and decisions made in the cause of survival and the pursuit of dignity from an end-of-life perspective. Goodwin Gill gets to the heart of the matter. Whether we are thinking about sealing borders or of the many current lesser policies and practices favored by governments today, what we see time and time again is how they fail entirely to understand what it is that drives people knowingly and rationally to risk their own lives and their families' lives. How little they know those now complicit in the loss of life. In spite of its formal espousal of community goals and community values, he believes after a lifetime of observing the problem, the European Union remains a congeries of dislocated and dysfunctional sovereign states, unable to contemplate working together on what is perceived perhaps as a difficult issue touching sovereignty, security, and of course, the other. And of course, the other. Goodwin Gill's existential invocation of the other as a, as a moral measure in the drafting of migration policy is remarkable for its boldness. The phenomenology of otherness very rarely creeps into political and policy parlance. In the Mediterranean papers, the other serves to mark two discursive registers. At one moment, the address to the other gives an agential authority to the distressed migrant subject who is being objectified in the rational choice of hate and needs now to be made the subject for this hate. Then there is another meaning attributed to otherness. The other in this second instance is part of a negative dialectics, a political decision 
to occupy the ethical and enunciative space of exclusion and negation, not in order to assume it for oneself, but to subvert and reverse the hegemonic logics of tribal nationalist priorities and majoritarian security and sovereignty. In this political reversal or chiasm, the framework of protection and security central to the laws relating to asylum and citizenship should take as their ethical and practical starting point, not their end point, starting point, the issues of insecurity and risk. Actually, um, Jeremy Waldron, in his work on security, also makes it in a very different context a similar point that we too often we talk about insecurity from the perspective of a normative perspective of security. But there are conditions in which you might want to reverse this. You might want to actually say, supposing we started with the notion of, in, of insecurity, supposing we started with that problem and then started thinking of deterrence, where would we be? What forms of protection would we actually be creating? So it's this same issue uh, that I find quite attractive in the work of Walden. Nobody, however, <coughs> this, this notion of changing the starting point by looking at the migrant or minorities insecurity and risk rather than looking first at sovereignty and security as surveillance, I believe is very important. Minorities like distressed migrants or refugees have the least to risk in the material sense and for that very reason they have the most to lose spiritually by not taking a risk in the struggles of empowerment. Nobody calls it better than James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time. We achieve our nation, he says, and retrieve our responsibilities as political subjects only when we fully realize that the price for transformation has to be social and psychic risk no matter what. It is only then that he writes that we do not simply achieve our nation but become aware of what it means for a community to earn its death. Goodwin Gill's Others are those who are dehumanized, turned into objects if not corpses, and dwell in the space of the rationality of risk. Risk is not simply the last act of despair. It is the starting point of practical and conceptual deliberations on migrant protection and minority protections more generally, rather than deterrence. So if you just think of the demands of the Me Too movement, or if you think of the great reversals that we've had in, uh, in, in many other social movements. It is to ask us to address our policies and to ask us to address our priorities and to ask us to address our ethics by trying in some way to occupy those places of risk, those places of insecurity, and then begin to think about sovereignty and security in the broader sense. What I've been saying this issue with Goodwin Gill of starting from the point of the insecure, starting from the point of death life, because without it, he says, policies will never be able to understand the problem that they really are trying to understand, even in good faith. Bearing this in mind, I want to just give you a few words from a Syrian refugee. You've heard the same from many others. But I do feel that these words are not simply words of desperation. 
they are a conceptual and theoretical and political challenge to us. In the words of a refugee on the road to Sweden, even if there was a European decision to drown the migrant boats, there will still be people going by boat because the individual considers himself dead already. Right now, Syrians consider themselves dead. Maybe not physically, but psychologically and socially, a Syrian is a destroyed human being. He has reached the point of death. So I don't think that even if they decided to bomb migrant boats, it would change people's decision to go. And the literary work around this area, I think, gives us a very vibrant and a very vital language to think these phenomenological and ethical problems. So the next section is called A Child and the Size of a Large Seabird. It's the last section. It's followed by a small poetry. Go down. Now this, I think this image was actually never shown. It was shown for a very short period of time, I believe, in Europe, and never shown in the United States and in other parts. It was the next picture where the policeman is holding, cradling the child, which is the picture that then showed. The picture of empathy, not this picture of complete loss. There's much to be said about why a picture of one child on a beach where there were three other children, why this singularity of the image had a particular effect, and, and we should talk about that. The a child the size of a seabird lies dead at the water's edge, face down in the agitated surf. A Syrian Kurdish child, Alan Kurdi, is shipwrecked on September the 2nd, 2015, while traveling with his mother and brother along the Turkish coast in an attempt to enter the EU and eventually join his father in Canada. Alam's brother, Galit, lies a few feet away, and a third older child is found dead at a further distance. The family has two strikes against them, reported the Ottawa Citizen. Like thousands of other Syrian Kurdish refugees in Turkey, the UN would not register them as refugees, and the Turkish government could not grant them exit visas. And this is what lawyers, particularly lawyers of a philosophical bent of, my, bent of mine, call the dark holes now that are emerging in this. Itimar Mann from the University of Haifa, who works on migration and drowning, has very interesting things to say about these dark holes. And I think this is these black holes, these dark holes. And I think this is also where these are not, these are terrible, terrible moments, but they're also moments in our time that demand not only political action, but also deep philosophical reflection on our own priorities, on the way we live our own lives, or on what citizenship means today when there are 65 million people 
displaced people in the world. What could citizenship mean today with 65 million displaced people, 65 million people, a country larger than the UK, a people without a nation, but for me, it is a population of a country. <clears throat> Alam Kurdi and his brother Gantip and his mother fall into a vacuum of illegal black holes. Once migrants fall into the legal black holes of the migration crisis, argues the legal scholar Itamar Man, whether on the high seas or in the SAR zone of another disintegrated state, they are beyond every state's jurisdiction. Killing typically occurs while all involved actors express their dismay, their shame, and indeed their horror, but can avoid extending their help. The first sight of a child lying still in the surge of the sea is it of sleep, drives you to the limit of looking and the edge of listening. When I came upon the first, this image of Alan cradled in the destructive element, I could only hear echoes of Dylan Thomas's great poem on the death of a child by fire in London during World War II. Never until the mankind making bird, beast, and flower, fathering and all humbling darkness, tells with silence the last light breaking and the still hour is come of the sea tumbling in harness. Deep with the first dead lies London's daughter, robed in the long trends, the grains beyond age, the dark veins of her mother secret by the unmourning water of the riding Thames after the first death, there is no other. The stillness of the single child is an iconic presence, is all the more striking in a crisis, conspicuous for the mass movement of peoples and displaced, displaced at literally walking or wading to detention centers or to watery graves. Migrants, argues Peter Kingsley, the migration correspondent of the uh, Guardian, in its purest sense, simply means someone on the move and casts no aspersions, positive or negative, on why they set out in the first place. The refugee's journey constitutes, he says, a reimagining of Europe's geographic space. The still image of Alain's tragic death in the very middle of a crisis, as I said, marked by mass movement and mass detention, has its own profound historical ironies. The camera mortis, as I've called it, frames not only a still single child, its emptiness also frames in absentia the violent complicity of the world around it. Empty of the bureaucrats of Brussels, empty of the barbarism of wars, international and civil, Afghanistan, Syria, er Iraq, Eritrea, Libya, empty of wars in pursuits of lost causes, whether they are weapons of mass destruction or weapons of mythic destruction, empty of wars for oil and global sovereignty, empty of the moral responsibility of reconstruction and resettlement, empty of the tyranny of the countries that have killed their citizens and displaced them and destroyed cities. The tragic death of Alain Kurdi becomes a screen memory, perhaps, in the Freudian sense, a compromise formation, conspicuous for its strategy of political and psychic defense, supported by retroactive, projected, 
fantasies and realities. If the refugee journey reimagines Europe's geographic space, then the digital commons, a kind of virtual civil society at its best, reimagined Alain Kurdi's global journey. It fills in the blanks of the camera mortis with the egregious externalities that preyed on the stillness of the deaf child. In the words of the Sheffield University study devoted to the global dissemination of Alain's image, and I quote, contemporary digital technologies allow for an accelerated version of this migration of motifs from one medium and pictorial context to another. A whole range of unexpected associations, often involving the establishment of a moral responsibility of the dead child and some other party, are brought together, the Sheffield University report says, through the form of montage, going back to the form of montage I earlier suggested through Benjamin, might be the best way of creating these ferocious juxtapositions and therefore making us as witnesses, as readers, as bystanders, really work out in and through the clash our own positions instead of being handed them in some kind of empathy from which we can then turn away as, uh, as people have often, countries have often done in the black holes. This is part of a longer set of essays on, on trying to understand what forms of ethical identification should we have in accepting our own vulnerabilities, accepting our own complicity. So that's a part of the argument that I've not actually gone through here. It's much more problematic notion of what form of judgment and identification we need. But suffice it to say, montage is in a way a way is, is, a, is a modality where you are actively interpolated, actively made to make your judgment. You are not given a position. You're actively given the difficulty of the decision making because montage is not only about two things coming or several things juxtaposed. It is always about tertium quid. Montage is a problem of not being able to find an overall frame and insisting that the reader, the thinker, the the, the bystander, the activist, makes that frame and takes responsibility for that platform of judgment. <clears throat> um, should we have the, uh, the, the, sorry, the global circuitry of the image is less a matter of news content. Then I believe it is a significant matter of cultural form. And I've been trying, as I say, talking about montage, to talk about the form of cultural perception and cultural judgment and political judgment. And the impact of Alain's iconic image cannot be calculated in terms of the speed and scale of information, tweets and posts, without turning our attention to the iconographic medium that shapes the attention of a global audience. Iconographic translation, remediation in the technical lingo, repeatedly restructures our identification with the image of uh, Alain through the scale of affect that montage allows us to have. Kurdi's global avatar is displaced from the unholy beach and the political aesthetic chosen to represent these unexpected associations, as the Sheffield Report calls it, is none other than montage. Public opinion and public policy may well be served by the acceleration of the digital image and its rapid circulation of information and news. 
However, there is a cultural and political lesson to be learned from the radical change in the shaping and the diffusion of the image. Can I have the next slide, please? The form of the circulation of the image is crucial to its political and affective iconicity. This was one of the remediations. There were several of them. And it is these remediations that really made it a kind of a global issue, a, a global active issue, as I would say. Not simply taking in the news, but using this thing to translate, to re-image, to re-imagine. These montage archives signify ethical identifications that cannot be adequately addressed by the registers of simply a political rationality, nor accounted for by the numerical speed and delirious volume of social media. Laid out on the Assad celebratory table, Alan's body is the child citizen now, a sacrificial lamb, the blood price of a failing state in the throes of dynastic tyranny and warfare, the child is the plaything of global superpowers too in their pursuit of unenlightened self-interest. The next one, please. Laid to rest on the EU conference table, Alain's body is the child refugee claiming the rights of asylum, making a plea for a more humane system of refugee protection for children and seeking some redress for periods of detention that can last from two to nine years. Members of the EU and the UN are seen to be turning away from the body in a derogation of an ethical identification. Next slide. Laid out against the opulent, towering skyline of Dubai and Qatar, Alan's body is an ethical measure of the radically unequal and unfair treatment meted out to refugees across the countries of the Middle East and the Gulf. Compared to the remarkable efforts in Turkey, and I don't have many good things to say about Turkey today, but the things that are good have to be spoken, Lebanon and Jordan, the response in the Gulf states, as indeed in the United States, has been derisory. Turkey, around two and a half million, Lebanon, over a million, Jordan, 664,000, the U USA, bless their cadaver, the UEA, 663, and Qatar, 120. These montages signify culpability, violence, and guilt, pity, terror, and anxiety that can neither be adequately addressed in the re registers of the political narratives we seek for information, nor accounted for by the numerical speed of social media. The camera mortis, as I've called it, whether it is positioned in the sky in Isabella or on the sand in the coast in Turkey, engages with warring temporalities within the image that, are, that would be found where the tension between opposites is greatest. The scale of affect then, not only rational thinking, but the scale of affect of these emotions imbues the iconographic sign with powers of iteration that give the image its global meaning, audaciously thrusting the original image out of its context, out of its normalized and habitual frame. The memory of montage repeats and recoils in the lens of the camera on the coast of the Caribbean island of Isabella, as surely as on the coast near Brooklyn, bringing us face to face with my final statement, the dialectical tension within migration and in the everyday lives of minorities 
dialectical tension between natality and totality. Death life, as I've been calling it, reveals a measure of life, a measure of being, of human survival, that haunts migration under duress, whether it is in indenture or indeed our current crisis. Coda, death life, natality, fatality. Natality, fatality in their conjoined juxtaposition signify an emblematic montage, a dialectical mean of migration in its trillers. Natality is not a naturalistic moral virtue, just as fatality is not governed simply by death as fate. As I have argued, death life is a struggle for survival, a hope ironically invested in death, physical or social, such as Hannah Arendt's epochal essay, The Human Condition, provides natality with a capacious social and symbolic meaning. Natality is life's capacity, as in the life of every migrant, for new beginnings. It is an act of ethical remediation, an agency of historical renewal. What is most significant for our purposes is Hannah Arendt's insistence in the human condition that the faculty of action is ontologically rooted in natality, the ontological desire for the renewal of life, for the change of one's circumstances, for the security that is bred with insecurity. In what sense, then, does the ontology of action as renewal relate to the particular action that we've been talking about, the action of movement, of moving, of wading, of walking, the action of migration, as Patrick Kingsley put it, which is basically people who have to be on the move, whether it's economic or political or for other reasons. The right to movement as the first principle of the agency of freedom is, I believe, at the foundation of Arendt's advocacy, her great, you know, her great phrase, the right to have rights, the right to have rights. And I think the advocacy, the movement is actually the right to movement, a connection not often made in reading of her work, is absolutely central to the notion of rights. In her celebrated Lessing lecture, Arendt wrote, of all the specific liberties which may come into our minds when we hear the word freedom, freedom of movement is historically the oldest and also the most elementary. Being able to depart from where we will is the prototypical gesture of being free, as limitation of freedom of movement has, from time immemorial, been the precondition for enslavement. Freedom of movement is also the indispensable condition for action, and it is in action that men and women primarily experience freedom in the world. Both action and thought occur in the form of movement, and that, therefore, freedom underlies both, freedom of movement. The primary aim of Article 13 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which deals with the right to movement, national and international, is the protect largely international, but there's also national uh, implication, is the protection of migrants and minorities. It is in the language of the article, and I quote, the prevention of discrimination on grounds of race, color, where people might live and how they might move from place to place. 
Despite opposition in the third session of the drafting process, Rama Mehta, the Indian, of the Indian delegate, resisted writing any limits into the article on the ground that the right to movement, she submitted, and I quote her, aimed at establishing the principle of freedom of movement, which, like freedom of speech, freedom of meeting, is a fundamental human right. Mehta's insight lies in the vital link she makes between the right to the freedom of movement and its intimate and integral connection to the very idea of freedoms or forts of liberty itself. Freedom of movement, as we see in the lives of minorities and migrants seeking protection, are affective practices, as emotional as they're rational, embedded in enunciation and action, and aimed at contextual and relational rather than individual freedoms. The destruction of migrant natalities in detention, drowning, living death, or bare life is tragic because it is not simply about the extinction of life. It is an insistent and imminent reminder of the desperation of life's choices in the face of death in order to survive. And in that sense, it is a lesson in the agony of death life as an intimate accompaniment to the agonism of human freedom and the achievement of human life. 